everyone, and welcome to Sustainability Explored. This is a podcast on sustainability, climate uh, science, circular economy, and innovations. The goal of this podcast is to show you how sustainability manifests itself in different sectors of economy, types of business, across all levels of operations. Basically, to show you what opportunities are there for sustainability implementation and um, applications of it. Today, we are talking with George Siegel, a film documentary filmmaker, and uh, we will cover the topic of natural disasters and whether it, it's possible or not to prevent it, to protect ourselves from um, these unfortunate events, what to do if you became uh, a victim of a natural disaster. We will speak about documentary filmmaking, resilient buildings, home ownership, legal requirements, uh, owning a small business and uh, overall dealing with uh, um, natural disasters before, when it happens, uh, in case it happens and after. Well, I am ready to start our interview and I hope you will enjoy it. So hi everyone, today our guest is George Siegel, uh, the author of the documentary called The Last House Standing, a documentary film about how everyone needs a home that doesn't blow away, wash away or burn down. We will be talking about natural disasters, uh, climate refugees, and everything that awaits us in the nearest future. George, I'm very happy to welcome you on Sustainability Explored. Thanks for joining us today. And the first question will be, how did you find yourself in film production, directing movies? Well, that's, uh, it, it, there's not a short answer for that. I, I started off my career in front of the camera. Uh, I was actually a, a weatherman for 14 years for, for TV news and an anchor, a sports anchor. I did all kinds of jobs there. Um, when I got out of that business, I started a production company where I would make marketing videos, TV shows. I tried doing some TV shows, um, some TV pilots. And I said, you know, I, I need a different format that might make us make it more compelling to tell a story and have it have more of a lasting impact. So I started making uh, documentary films. And this is actually my second film that I've made, The Last House Standing. And I, it seems to be having an impact right now in, in the conversation that it starts with people. When people see it, they go, yeah, wow, look at all these victims of major disasters. I don't want to end up like that. And our film talks about how there are things you can do so you don't end up like that. Uh, but sadly, too often, people don't take it seriously. I know you and I were chatting before we started. Uh, people just don't think it's going to happen to them, so, so, so they don't worry about it. And I wanted to make a film that would hopefully make a difference. Right. 35 plus years in uh, production, right? Yeah, look at the gray hair. Jeez. Yeah, I've been doing this for a long time. Right. Uh, why? What was the first movie about? The first movie was called License to Parent. And it was about how parenting may be the most important job in the world. And we let anybody do it with no requirements whatsoever. If you are capable of reproducing, you can have a child. But that doesn't make you a parent. And it certainly doesn't make you a good parent. Right. And so the film explored how can we help parents to be better at their job because in most, I don't know how, how it is in your country, but here parents are scorned for doing a bad job. They're disrespected. People look at them and roll their eyes if you have a child that's screaming in the supermarket or your kid's misbehaving at school and they don't realize there's other things going on. And how about support and help and guidance? Because when, if my neighbor has really messed up kids, eventually it's gonna affect me. And I just wanted to create an awareness with parenting that um, it's not as simple as you're doing a bad job, you're doing a good job. It's how can we help everybody do a better job? Right. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned this um, first movie topic. It made me think it's true. To, if, you, if you can reproduce, there is no prior requirement. Yet when you want to adopt and do something you know uh, what is it called good and noble mm -hmm. in a way 
the list of requirements, the length of this procedure, court uh, proceedings, and etc. It's just uh, insane. Or if people decide to go with surrogacy, it's gonna cost them a lot. Sure, and and if you think about that, it's like the the it almost sounds like it's backwards because yeah. you can accidentally get pregnant and have a child. And the consequences of that can be life altering. Whereas the family, the couple that wants to raise a child and is reaching out to do that has such a different intention that, but, but yet they're scrutinized so hard and many people have a tough time adopting a child. Yeah. And it's really kind of out of whack. The only thing they worry about when you have a child at the hospital is, is your car seat put in properly as you're leaving. So they hand you this baby. They'll sometimes they walk out to the car and they make sure the seat is as in there tight. There's so much more than that, as any parent will tell you. That's that's actually not the most difficult part, but that's the only part that they seem to really care about. Well, that's yet another movie in my uh, short list of movies to watch ASAP. Yeah, please. Um, yeah, how then you turn to natural disasters? And you know, the question I have is like, how is it possible even to comprehend this topic, to really encompass it, to, to get it. Well, how was the movie? How did you work on the movie? Why did you have this idea? Well, I said, as I told you, I was a TV weatherman. And mm -hmm. so we used to tell people bad weather was coming. Mm -hmm. And I noticed a trend. It's like if we would warn you in June that a hurricane was coming and you need to evacuate, and then it didn't happen because hurricanes turn, then when we would tell you again in August, people would go, nah, it didn't happen in June, so now it's not gonna happen in, in August. And that's kind of what happened in Austin with uh, the, in, in Austin, Texas, and other parts of Texas with the ice storm that paralyzed them um, a few months ago. They had had a warning earlier in the year that they were gonna have bad weather and it missed them. And so I mean, my son lives there and he goes, ah, I didn't think this one was gonna be that bad. And I said, but I called you. I called you and told you it was going to be that bad. I told you a week in advance it was going to be that bad. But a lot of people buy their groceries every day. They run to the market and get stuff. They don't have supplies. They never thought of having a generator. So, so the whole thought process that I've seen for years is that people don't prepare and that they don't really seem that concerned. So when I got out of the broadcasting industry, I was making shows uh, with a, a buddy of mine in San Antonio, Wes Vollmer, we were making shows about concrete and how durable it is and how what a great uh, material it is to build houses with. And I thought of, gosh, I want to have the last house standing. And so I've had this name for years. And then in 2018, I was going to start making the film. I said, I'm going to finally tell this story. And then Hurricane Michael hit in uh, Panama Beach, Panama City in Mexico Beach, Florida. And I found the owner of that house that was on the beach and I got him to agree to, to an interview. And that truly is the last house standing in that area. And I thought this is a great thing to theme the film around. Now, it's, it's, this is interesting. I had a film critic the other day say, maybe you picked too high end a house to use. Not everybody can afford a house like that. And it's really, well, it's the principle of it. It's not, it, it's, it's what it stands for. It doesn't mean you have to have a palace on the beach on stilts. It means do whatever you can to have the last house standing. It's bigger than that house. Um, you know, a lot of people build, Habitat for Humanity builds houses in the $100,000 range. And usually they're standing after a big storm. So it's attention to detail. There's so many things you can do. Um, so I, I, I worked on that. I had to track down all the people that were in the film. It wasn't easy to get a lot of them. Um, we got an interview with the FEMA director and that's not easy to get in there as a filmmaker because everybody wants to attack FEMA because mm -hmm. it's easy to criticize somebody after a disaster and not look at all the good things that they do. And I said, look, we're not looking to burn you guys. We, we love the work you do and, and we want to talk about how do we avoid having to have the FEMA people show up in our town? And so we got in to interview them. We got a guy that was on 60 Minutes. His name is Hank Ovink. Um, I saw him on TV. Actually, my videographer saw him on TV and said, you got to look at this guy. But it took almost a year to get him because he's so busy and so in demand. And it all started falling together with the experts that we got and the, the different stories. And you're also faced when you're doing a, an hour, hour and a half film is how many stories can you get in? How, uh, there's so many things to talk about. 
Right. And so we tried to touch on a lot of things. You know, we probably need to make more of these, but um, it, it's it's challenging. And, and I, I look back at it and, and I never pat myself on the back because I'm always critical of everything that I do. But I go, wow, there's a lot of information in here mm-hmm. that can help people. And I, I feel really good about it. I'm usually I'm usually looking back at things going, what could I have done differently? Yeah. But when I look at this film, I feel really good about what we did. Yeah. You know, um, talking about this uh, FEMA people, I work in risk management and I only start to realize now how insane it is that you cannot kind of pat yourself on the shoulder on what did not happen because people do not see what did not happen, what got prevented. So it's a positive thing, but they will definitely see what went wrong, what's negative and you know where you could have acted better. So risk management, all this prevention, I didn't think it would be that bad. Oh, then it happened to me. And so there, there is a lot of this uh, risk management, I think, strategy that kind of has to be implemented in the, in the logic, in the behavior, like psychology behavior of people. And it's not that easy. You cannot see what you cannot see. You cannot touch what you cannot see. And, and so many things with, with a, a group, uh, an entity like FEMA or other things is it's become political now where you know, if, if uh, you show up at a disaster, certain people are gonna attack you whether you do a good job or a bad job. Maybe they don't perceive properly why you're there to help and what your role is to help. And it's very easy when you're struggling and you're now a victim, you, ha- you wanna blame somebody and you wanna say, how come people aren't helping me? Because it's horrible what people go through after a disaster, but that's not necessarily FEMA's role to come in and rebuild your house and, and your community. It's to be a bridge and a support. But one of the things they're trying to do, and, and I think that's one of the reasons we got in for the interview, is because we're talking about being proactive. And, you know, I'm surprised we weren't able to get insurance companies on board. I'm, you know, that's a tough industry. They should have wanted this film badly. Because if you can prevent the disaster, they would save billions of dollars. I could not get a nickel out of those guys. Um, all I get out of the insurance industry is the, my bill every few months to pay for my insurance. But if you ever want something from them, it's like pulling teeth. And I would have thought I went, I approached some companies that I go, wow, this is what they stand for. You know, companies like USAA, um, there's a new company here called Lemonade that are trying to break into the industry. And I thought, hey, these guys will jump on this. They'll help support this film because it'll make them look like we don't want to have to pay for your recovery. Mm -hmm. Crickets, they didn't give me the time of day. How weird, because yeah. you know, insurance question was one of my natural logical questions. It feels like the climate risk has to be included in, the, in their own insurances, I mean, risk assessment. And so they will advise you against, I don't know, buying the property on the risk, in, in their risky areas. And uh, it's weird that they did not want to participate in the movie. They really missed out the big opportunity on a big opportunity. I, I think so. Maybe I'm a bad salesman. You know, maybe it's not them, but you know, the, the insurance industry every year, they, it seems like they take a beating. They must still be making money because they're still in business. I, I think some of those companies end up folding, but we pay a lot of money for insurance. And that's one of the problems is people fight. Brock Long, the former FEMA director would say, people used to come in and argue with FEMA when they would declare an area risky. And if you think about it, you should be saying thank you for pointing out my risk because maybe I won't have to suffer from it. And that's the same with insurance. If you live in an area that floods, they're probably going to charge you more. If you live in an area that doesn't flood, like in uh, Hurricane Harvey in, in Houston, a lot of those people weren't in a flood zone and they could have purchased hurricane insurance very, in, I mean, uh, flood insurance very inexpensively. But probably nobody tried to sell it to them, nobody told them that. And insurance is really your last line of defense as a homeowner because it's, it's your biggest investment. It's, you usually, we put everything into our houses. I mean, there's some people that are fortunate to have several, but most of us just have one. And that is what you have to protect. And if you don't have it properly insured and there's a disaster, you're out of luck. And if you have an older home and it's not insured in a way that would allow you to rebuild it to today's standards, you can't even fix your house. There's people in Malibu, California 
that probably had their houses 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, when maybe you could have got it for three or $400,000. Now it's worth millions, but they probably had it insured for three or $400,000. So now that house burns down in a fire, what do you do? Um, and, and it's the same with insuring possessions. We had people in the film who had classic uh, collector cars in their garage, this one gentleman. Um, and it, the, the car, he took the insurance off because the car wasn't working and it was ruined and it was melted down in the fire. Terrible. So having insurance and realizing that just because I didn't use it this year doesn't mean I wasted my money is a very important thing for people to think about because you might need it next year or the year after that. You know, you don't take the airbag out of your car on the way to work because you go, I'm not going to get in an accident today. You want it, didn't it happen you... yesterday, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You want it there when you do get in an accident. And yeah. it's the exact same thing with insurance. You need to have enough of it. And you need to understand your policy, actually read it. Yeah, especially what's written in the, in the bottom lines in the smaller font. Yeah, there's a reason it's a 20 page or, you know, I think mine is 50 pages. It's ridiculous. Nobody read who, why would you sit there and read that? Well, there's a reason on page 17, it might say that a, a named storm is insured differently than, and than one that's not. So I know that a lot of people in hurricane Michael were hoping it would be declared a category five because they had different coverage for a category five hurricane than they would if it was a four. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of reasons there to actually say, okay, look, I'm going to sit down and read it. And if you, if you really don't, don't think you're capable of that, go to the person who sold you that policy and ask them to really explain it to you. Because I've had some really good insurance guys. I mean, forget the big companies, but the, the guy at the lower level that sells you the policy, they, they know that stuff. They're pretty smart people and pretty smart men and women. Ask them questions and, yeah. and understand what your policy is or get a consultation from a lawyer, from someone who can read those texts and be on your side, right? Not on the side of someone who sold you, but someone who is there to protect your interests. Sure, absolutely. What are the other ways to protect your housing? One that we talked about is financial, I would say, insurance. Mm -hmm. What are the other ways that uh, the movie kind of suggested you while you were working on the movie, what have you seen? Well, there's, there's two things to think about. If you're doing new construction, really understand how they're building the house. Now I've had a, a, I've been involved with building a lot of houses over the years. And a lot of times they don't want you on the job site when they're building and they don't need you looking over their shoulder, but you need to be looking over their shoulder because you want to see the work that they're doing, who the crew is that's out there working on it. What are the materials that they're using? How safe is that house? So you're only going to find out by asking questions. If they don't want to answer it and tell you how the house is built, I wouldn't buy it because it, it only is going to be your problem later, not theirs. If you have an older home, hire an inspector, talk to your neighbors and see who they've used and have somebody come in and go over your house and find out where your vulnerabilities are. You know, if it's an older home, the roof might not be bracketed to the walls of the house. Um, is there anything that would keep the roof on in a strong wind? A lot of times the front door is very vulnerable. We have a double front door at our house and I was thinking, okay, it opens in. If the wind is really strong, that door's blowing in. So I found this uh, Kevlar hurricane blanket that goes around the door that screws in. So if a major storm is coming and they claim uh, it'll withstand a category five hurricane and keep your front door from blowing in, that only cost me 400 bucks. So for 400 bucks, I could possibly save my house. You know, does your house have hurricane windows? Do you have the proper venting um, on your garage if it's gonna flood? Um, a lot of people put those screens on there. That's what most builders slap on there. Well, what was explained to me by the, the people in our film at, at floodproofing.com is that doesn't work when debris is flowing in and out of your garage, that they get blocked off and clogged. And if all that pressure is pushing against your garage, your house can collapse from that and be damaged. So they make one that opens in and out and it actually opens up completely, allows the water to come in and it allows the water to go back out again. And they save a lot of houses by having that on there. So you, you need to get professional advice to understand where your vulnerabilities are and try to fix what you can and what you can't fix, make sure you have insurance to cover. Right. You know, when I was little, I was reading books about nomads living in the deserts in Sahara, for example. And 
I remember as a kid thinking, well, they have a goal, they need to reach to, to the water. That's the only reason they are wandering around uh, in the desert, in the sands. Two years ago, we traveled to Morocco with my husband and I saw Berbers, uh, tribes. This is how they live. They don't need electricity. Their kids don't go to schools. They speak their own language and they're not looking for water. They get their water on their little donkeys. That's how they live. Later on, I saw a documentary on Far East Russian uh, cities where the temperature drops below 50 uh, Celsius. And I'm like, they, they cannot even put their houses on the grounds. They stand on columns, so to say, because otherwise it's, uh, it's not a house. You cannot be in it because you're freezing inside. You have to be elevated above the ground. And I was like, why do people choose to live in these unbearable conditions. Now you spoke about your house and how you had to protect the door. And I, I was imagining those tornadoes, the floods, the disasters, natural disasters. And I was like, again, why do people live in these risky areas? You, well, first of all, a lot of people don't, don't have a choice in some instances. Um, Roy Wright is a gentleman we interviewed in the film. And he said, most people in this country in, at least in the United States, live in proximity to work or school or family. So they don't always have a choice where they are going to live. So that, that's one issue. The other issue is, okay, but what about the risky places? You know, everybody's moving to Florida now, but there's also a danger in living in Florida. And, you know, we all flock to the water. We want to be by the water. In some countries, they don't let you live in the most vulnerable places. Um, our expert, Hank Ovink, um, would talk about how in the Netherlands, whatever, they, they would make people move if it was in a flood area. They would make them relocate because the government doesn't want to have to bail them out if there is a disaster. So they, they think in advance of that. In this country, we don't do that. Everybody has their individual freedoms. I can do what I want. I can live where I want. I can go where I want until there's a problem. And then you want someone to fix it for you. But you have to think about it in advance and you have to go, okay, if I'm going to live in uh, New Orleans, What's my first clue? Okay, it's below sea level. There's a seawall there. It is possible for this to flood. Um, if you live in Florida, Tampa is a bullseye for a hurricane. We haven't had one that really direct hit this area for years, or if not ever. And it, it, they say that if a major hurricane hit Tampa, we talk about this in the film, downtown would be under 20 feet of water. There would probably be half a million uh, houses and buildings that would be damaged and, and have to be rebuilt. Uh, because the population has exploded here over the years. Um, South Florida has been hit by a lot of hurricanes, but what you've seen them do over the years, they've increased the standard of how they build. You have to build to withstand 175 mile an hour winds um, in order to put up structures there. And it shows that when the weather is bad, those they tend to survive better because they're built to a higher standard. Mexico Beach, which was decimated in 2018, only raised their wind code from 130 miles an hour to 140 miles an hour. Well, that's not what wiped them out. It was a lot stronger wind than that. It was a storm surge that was, that was 15 or 20 feet. So they're not even going to rebuild to a standard that would survive the disaster that wiped them out. Right. So you know what the risk is and you have to understand that risk and you have to say to yourself, okay, I'm willing to risk this you know, maybe people need to sign something. It goes back to the parenting thing. If you're going to live someplace risky, put down on paper that you're acknowledging the risk. And I know they do that if you're not going to evacuate under a mandatory evacuation, because first responders who risk their lives to save us have to come in and get you. And so they, I know in some instances, they say, we want you to write your, uh, with a, a, a non-erasable ink, write your information on your arm. So when we can, when we find your body, we can properly identify you um, because people don't even want to evacuate if there's a bad storm. Well, yeah, I guess it's a personal choice after all. It is, but you know, it, it, once your personal choice affects somebody else, it, it's like you, you see when people drive through the, the high water crossings and the car gets swept down and then the sheriff's rescue unit or whatever has to come fire department, rescue them. Those people are now risking their life to save your life 
because you didn't pay attention to what the, the rules were there. So yeah, people can have their own rights and do what they want. It's a free country. But once my rights affect your rights, I have to think that one over a little bit. The freedom of one ends with the where the freedom of the next one starts. Exactly. And you know, we, we use that example. I mean, one of the things we talked about in License to Parent, it's like, yeah, I can tell you, you can't tell me how to raise my kids. I can do whatever I want. Sure, if I live on a compound away from society and my kids stay there, it doesn't matter what I do to you. But once I let them out into society and they're selling drugs, they're killing people, they're, they're criminals, they're uh, whatever, whatever bad things they might go on and do, now I've made it your problem. And I think that's a problem everywhere. It's like, okay, if, if you're not going to do a good job at what you do, at least contain it to yourself. I had this idea years ago because I'm really anti-cigarette smoking. I thought cigarette smokers should have to wear uh, space helmets because that way they can do whatever they want. It's all contained in their helmet. You can smoke all day and it stays right in there. But once you take that helmet off and your smoke blows in my face, that's not fair. Yeah, not, not very pleasant and it's true, it's not fair. Yeah. You know, a question I have, I, I was in France in 2015, 14, 13, when the series of um, uh, teracts happened, one in uh, Bataclan Theater in Paris. And then I was actually in Nice when uh, at the, on 14 of July, the, um, Le Jour de la Bastille, the, the day of taking the Bastille. It's a nat national holiday and there was a truck, maybe you remember that the truck went through the crowd of people on the mm. promenade. And I remember reading the interviews with um, witnesses, survival, survivors. And there were a couple of stories where same people that survived the Paris event happened to be, I don't know, 20 centimeters from the truck and survived in the Nice attack. With the natural disasters, have you come across people who, su who survived one disaster, moved to another place, and the disaster hit that new location? Because I had a feeling five, six years ago that there is some kind of, I don't know, call it energy field that connects these people, and they either bring this disaster with themselves until it eventually hits them. I don't know how to explain it. You know, there are people who have never been in any sort of situation like this. It's, it's something that doesn't happen every day, even in the most disturbed areas. And there are people who managed to hit three events in the same year. Yeah, I mean, ask your neighbors if it flooded where they lived before and then run. Um, I, I, I know there are stories like that. We didn't encounter any of that. People that have been affected a second time by a disaster. Um, but a lot of people, even when it hits them one time, uh, the mayor of Malibu made a great comment. He said, five years from now, this will just be a memory for people um, after the big fire. And they'll just have gone on and, and act. they forget about it. They forget about the disaster that, that struck them. And you see that um, every year here on the Mississippi River when the snow is melting and there's flooding. And these poor people who get flooded every year say, I'm gonna rebuild. This is my home, I'm gonna rebuild. Maybe that's not the right answer. It's like, once you know that you're in an area that can be damaged, why would you rebuild in the exact same spot unless you're building better so it wouldn't happen to you the next time? In terms of relocating, yeah. I mean, if I live by the ocean and my house gets damaged, maybe I'll try to find another place by the ocean. Um, so maybe that might be the commonality is they like that type of, they don't mind, they're averse to that kind of risk. You know, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I know the risk. Most people in Florida will tell you, I'm living in paradise. The risk is worth it. But when you talk to them afterwards, when the, after the disaster, I'm not so sure that that's the case because so much is lost and it's so disorienting for people. You know, you, people lose jobs, people lose lives tragically. They have to, you know, schools are closed, um, family heirlooms wiped out by a disaster because they didn't um, get them out of the house. So there's so many downsides to when it happens bad that I don't know that why well, anybody would want to go through it a second time. I would want to do everything possible to avoid that. No. And so what are you suggesting? So, uh, selecting good materials, 
uh, get an awareness about the risks, potential risks in, in your area, insurance, what else? It's a whole process. The first thing is understanding the, the true risks of where you live. And your realtor doesn't always tell you that. Um, the talk to neighbors, you know, when we were looking at houses here, we talked to some neighbors just walking around. So what do you think of this street? And they go, this street floods. The water gets up to front doors when it rains here. Well, that stopped us from wanting to live on that street. And, and so you have to talk to people that are there, talk to people in the community. A lot of times, especially since houses are such a shortage now and they're selling really quickly in this country, people just grab something and think they need to get it. And if you don't truly understand all the risks that you face and how safe that structure is, you could be throwing a lot of money away without truly understanding what the, what the downside is. So I think people have to be more aware of that and ask more questions. It's very intimidating asking a builder questions about how they built because they have a kind of an attitude about it. Like, well, I build good houses because I'm a good builder. If, if you're truly good, the ones I've known that were really good builders, we're happy to tell you why their house is safe. You know, I put concrete block on the second floor. Um, I use these special hurricane brackets on the roof. I have uh, foam in the attic that creates this tight seal. And the, they'll, they'll sit there and explain those things to you because they're proud of what they do. The guy that won't tell you anything, don't, don't give him the credit of buying his or her house. But you know, you know? not only that, you have to know what kind of questions to even ask. I have zero idea about what kind of materials are there and how, if this is better than that, how do you know all of that? Even if they well, are openly sharing. Well, you have to do some research. You have to have some knowledge. You should know more than, oh, I like granite countertops. <laughs> or, oh, it has a Viking stove. You yeah. know, those things are great and you use them every day, but it's also important to know what the walls are made of, what the flooding risk is there. And those aren't fun things to do, but on our website, thelasthousestanding.org, there's a res uh, resource section where you can go to a lot of uh, websites, uh, government websites, uh, business websites, and see things that are out there and do your homework. So on a Saturday, when the weather's nice, instead of saying, I got to spend 15 hours outside today, take a couple hours and sit inside and do your homework. Actually understand what your risks are and how you can do something to prevent them. Because this is the time to do it. You know, uh, we were talking last week about hurricane preparedness week is always in May in most places. Well, I would hope you're doing your preparations, your safety preparations way before May. Um, that may be a good time to get water and some canned goods and some candles and batteries, but don't wait till the storm is coming to say, oh, wow, now I need to make my house safer. The time to do that is on a nice sunny day when you can think and you can focus on what needs to be done. It reminds me of uh, how Ukraine deals with uh, snow every time December comes and it's such a surprise. We need machinery. We need salt, sand. To, to protect from the slip, ourselves from the slippery roads. And every time, oh, we didn't know. We didn't know it's going to be icy. <laughs> and that's a tough one. You know, in Texas this year, when they had all the, the ice storms and the record cold for all that time, if you live in San Antonio or Austin, it's not cost effective to have snow plows because you may use it every five years. So what is important? Well, now you need to have stocked up on supplies. If you have a fireplace, you needed to have firewood. You needed to have batteries. Maybe you have some type of emergency generator. Now you've seen what can happen when you totally rely on the, the power industry or the government to say, I know those guys are doing everything right. I, can th I think we can safely assume that there will be problems there because they have such a huge task to maintain. So you have to look at yourself and go, how can I be my last line of defense? How can I make myself as safe as possible? You know, a lot of people um, don't think about that. A generator, if a whole house generator is expensive, but there are generators you could get that could help you in, a, in an emergency, in a pinch. So you have to think about what could happen. And I'm not throwing money away being prepared because the time I'll be without that will be miserable. And there were a lot of people there. Lives were lost. People were injured. People were freezing. A lot of that could have been prevented by individuals just being better prepared. Right. It always makes me think of health and safety issues. And there is a saying why I always stress it on every project I work on, health and safety, protocols, uh, induction trainings. 
because there is a saying every rule that is written in those books is written with blood there is a reason that line is there you know so there is only hope that every new event will prepare people uh, more to to the events like this you know and from a preparation standpoint there's a professor in our film joseph barbera um, at george washington university and he has the line that is on our um, poster for our film hope is not a strategy and he said that's the saying in emergency management you know well, i hope it's not going to happen to me well that's not a strategy yeah it's, it's a thought you're saying well i don't want anything bad to happen but that's not going to save you because as what we've learned the last several years is disaster tends to find places where you least expect it. You know, Mexico Beach was a beautiful little community of older homes nestled on the ocean and it got wiped out. They weren't expecting that. I mean, maybe people sitting around and you always see hurricane parties in Louisiana and New Orleans where people are at the bars going, it's not gonna hit us, we're, we're hardy. Sometimes it does. What was the biggest challenge for you working on the movie? Uh, getting people committed to, to be interviewed, it, that seems to be the toughest part. It's easy to go someplace, uh, but to get people to actually talk to you, especially the experts, uh, take some work because they're going to be protective of their brand. You know, it's like, yeah, they don't know me. I'm just a filmmaker. They don't know what my motivations are and what story I'm trying to tell. Um, so that's the toughest part is convincing people that you don't have an agenda. You know, you want to get in to talk to FEMA as a reporter, you want to be able to ask the tough questions. And if they say something really outrageous, you want to be able to use that in your film. Well, that's not what our purpose was for going there. Our purpose was to talk to them and say, how can we be proactive and prevent disasters? Um, but we came across some, some stuff during the film. Um, there was a contractor that was showing us around and introducing us to people. And he actually ended up getting arrested for allegedly taking insurance money from them. And, you know, we couldn't, we didn't use that in the film because it really wasn't relevant to the story that we were telling. So the, when you're a small crew, all those people, if we had thrown that out, we wouldn't have been able, you know, you can't afford misses when you're, uh, when you're on a, a limited budget to make a film. You can't afford to follow a story around and have it disappear because something crooked happened or something bad happened. So it's very challenging and, and, you, and, and going to different places the logistics of shooting and taking a drone up in the air. I mean, we had some amazing drone footage of Mexico Beach, but at the same time, you also have to be aware of you're flying over somebody's house that, you know, that lost everything. So it, there are highs and lows in a project like that, but when it's done, at least you get to go home. And, and those people are left behind probably for years having to deal with that disaster. And that, that's a tough part of it too. Yeah, there is something important you said. You get to go home and they don't. It makes you appreciate what you have. Even though it's so trivial, like you you, think, you sit and you think, well, it's just a home. Who doesn't have one? Yeah, and, and, and you know, you see it here in, in, this, in this country in particular, the Weather Channel is huge and they have their stars come out when there's a storm. And those people, you know, Jim Cantores of the world are out there risking their lives to bring us a story about the weather. But when the storm is gone, they go to the next storm. The place that just got wiped out is just beginning to deal with the tragedy that hit them. And all the national news channels don't usually stick around for that because it's not the big news anymore. They'll do a few stories a few days afterwards, but it's an ongoing thing for them of how do they rebuild their houses and, and rebuild their lives. And then there's a frustration that I sense from a lot of, a lot of folks there that they're just kind of left behind. You've, the, the, their moment in the disaster spotlight has gone on, but for them, it's really just the beginning of what they're going to have to spend years fixing. Who helps them? Who helps these people to rebuild and regain some clarity over their housing situation? Any governmental, I don't know, organizations or nonprofits? There are a lot of those. FEMA initially can be your bridge. You know, they can help you if you need a hotel, if you need some emergency things. In certain instances, I think the government helps with maybe low interest loans that for people to rebuild, but that's not free. You still have to pay for it. So you hope that those people had insurance so they're able to cover that. 
But the, the, the thing that we found that's really scary is the people that come in after a disaster that have bad intentions. And I look at it as, uh, I've used this analogy a lot though. If you're in a place like New York City in the middle of the night and you put a big spotlight on, you'll see all the rats scurrying and the cockroaches and all the things that you don't normally see. That's what comes out after a disaster. Because while there's a lot of people that risk their lives to help people and save lives immediately after, it's that next wave of people that come in and say, yeah, I can fix your roof. I'll put a tarp on it. It's going to cost you $10,000. You know, on a normal day, that tarp might be a couple hundred bucks to put on there. But if your roof is leaking and your family's there, you're desperate. So people end up paying that. Or somebody says, yeah, you have to sign your insurance over to me and I'll coordinate getting your house fixed. They now control the money for your house. And a lot of those people get ripped off. And it happens all the time. Anytime there's a disaster, you know, thank goodness for the, the police and the fire department and all the people that save us and help us. But then there's all the people that are the lower sectors of the world that say, hey, I can make some money off this. I'm going to go in and rip these people off. And that's tragic because now you've been damaged and now you're damaged again because you're vulnerable. And you think that your white knight is riding in to, to save you and, and they're not. And, and so you don't want to get up, get in that position. Um, because you don't know in that time, you know, if your roof is leaking, your house is burning, you need help at that moment, but not everybody is there to help you. Yeah. Well, you reminded me of why I am personally afraid to buy property. And I consciously suppose choose to read, to live in rented apartments my family was um, we were coming we are coming from the eastern part of ukraine that is now taken by uh by the aggressor country by the neighbor and we had to leave all the property all the belongings there moved to the capital city and started from scratch and i didn't notice that i have this internal struggle like no later i have the money but i'm not going to invest it in the property i'm going to find some other way because I don't want to commit to the geographical place, to the location. If, in case something happens, I always can grab my, I don't know, one little suitcase and move on. But hopefully you have renter's insurance. A lot of people who rent think that the building has insurance mm -hmm. and it covers them. And then a disaster hits and they don't cover your belongings or anything in your apartment. So you still need to have insurance if you're a renter. Yeah. And you still need to know how safe the building is that you're living in. There's places here in Florida that build apartment complexes out of wood that are near the water. The insanity of that, I can't even begin to wrap my head around how stupid that is, but people live in those buildings. And so you, you may think that, well, I'm renting, so I'm safe. You're only as good as the, the company that built that building. Yeah. And if you don't have insurance, you can lose everything because they'll... They're not, go to your man, your, go to the owner of that building and say, hey, my big screen TV was damaged in the storm. They're just going to laugh at you. I'm not going to pay for that. Why should, they don't have to. Mm -hmm. That's not their fault. But you still want to know how the building was built, how safe it is, what the fire standard is of the building. Um, you kind of have to do your homework where whatever situation you're in. Um, because if you don't, you're again, you're relying on somebody else helping you and, and you should, you have to be your own best advocate. That's the main takeaway. I think from our film um, is you have to look out for yourself. Grow the teeth of the tiger. <laughs> yeah. It's easier said than done. It's not fun. You know, it's like my wife makes fun of me when I'm taking pictures of things in the house or discussing a hurricane plan. She looks at me and goes, you're an idiot. It's March. We don't care about this. I said, first of all, I'll look like an idiot. If I'm not prepared and a storm hits and I made this film, I could see the headline in the paper, filmmaker who made film about warning people for a storm wiped out. You know, it's like, what a moron. So I, I, I'm probably overly paranoid about that. You know, I want to be the, the third pig that has, has the brick house that's prepared, not the other two that are scrambling to get over to the house. Right. Well, you can never be overly prepared. You do well what you can. True. I mean, I, I hope it's not to the point of complete paranoia. I mean, I don't go around worrying about it on a daily basis, but I, I, I think people have to change their mentality that at least they think about it. 
You know, there's people that are lifelong Floridians that don't have generators because they just roll the dice. It's not going to happen to me. We had a, a tropical storm that moved through here in November, a late season storm. And it followed the path of what a major hurricane that could wipe this place out would go. And it wasn't, this was never a hurricane. It was just a tropical storm. And a lot of houses were flooded here because of a storm surge that was probably about five or six feet. Um, but a lot of the older houses are at sea level. So, you know, the storm is, as Hank Oving says, it's your x-ray, it's your MRI of your neighborhood, your community, and it shows you what your vulnerabilities are. And, and now it's your decision of how you're going to repair them and fix them to survive the next one. So it, it comes in, it does its damage, or it just misses you and you see the next community. But unfortunately, when most people dodge the bullet, they, they just go, phew, and then they go on with their day. It's like you almost get in a car accident your heart is beating and you're, you're a little off for a few seconds and then you get back into the song you're listening to and you, you move on and, and you can't do that. Right. I hope these situations at least make you stop for one second and take precautions, take actions before something else happens. Absolutely. That, that was my goal with the film. If, if, the, if we can accomplish that and you never really know when you make a film, I mean, you know, you know do you think you're going to really change the world as a filmmaker? little of that's a bold reach on anything but you hope that it resonates with enough people that's my strategy of hope there is that it resonates with enough people that they all do something they say okay i can't change the law in this the building code in this town by myself but my own little house here i can work on the building code of that house and and if everybody fixes their own space it's it's a start It'll, at least there'll be less damage when the when the storm comes totally what are you working on right now? You know, I'm looking at a possible sequel to this film, and then I have a bunch of other ideas. You know, as a filmmaker, it's great to have ideas. The challenge is how do you pay for them? You know, you're a business, and you know, so I, you, you have to find things, projects that, that can be uh, sponsored or paid for. Sponsored is the wrong word, really, because we had no sponsors in uh, The Last House Standing. That's why there's no true there's no message or agenda we had donors people that contributed money to the film but they didn't have a stake in well maybe they'll buy more of my product yeah no um, attached yeah but sometimes you have you know sometimes you have to sell your soul a little bit for certain projects so i'm just looking i'm trying to see what's out there and you know what uh a lot of times you throw a bunch of things up in the first one that sticks to the wall yeah you say, I'll, I'll go for that one Thanks so much for this interview. Uh, it opened my eyes, honestly, on one thing in particular. Uh, you were saying building code, fire safety, uh, owner of the building. We don't have either of those things. And I think people outside of the US, and probably outside of North America, I would consider Canada, would put that in, in that um, category of countries that have legislation, norms, I don't know, fire safety, et cetera, et cetera. The, not everywhere else in the world you can actually find this information, address it to anyone. The realtors do not have this information either. Uh, their job is only to sell you the, the house or the apartment and move on with their own life. So there is a... Um, like the, the thoughts that generated in my head while I was talking to you were mostly legal wise. How well, do that, we change all of that? Yeah, I mean, and so if you live in another country, if you're not in the United States, I mean, that's the beauty of the internet. People can still go to thelasthousestanding.org. They can rent our film and watch it online. They can look at the resources and you can apply those to your neighborhood. I mean, it's going to be different codes, as you say, or a lack of codes, but still somebody living in, in your area could say, okay, what are my vulnerabilities in my house? Do I have insurance? They can still think of a lot of the principles in the film because the one thing that's common here that, that might be similar is here we have entire industries that lobby to keep the standards for structures low and the homeowner should want the standards as high as possible. And so if you live in an area where there is no code, there are no rules, you have to find out then what are the safety boundaries here and how can I do something to, um, to, to meet those or to at least survive those. So thelasthousestanding.org is a great resource for that. 
And you know, the films on there, I have it so low priced, it's $3.99 to watch the film. Yeah. You know, as a filmmaker, you want to charge 10, 20 bucks, but we also really want people to see it. And they can also get cool Last House Standing uh, gear on there, <laughs> like this lovely mug. Um, there's a lot of things that, uh, that, that can help you. And so I hope people will check it out and, um, and hopefully get something from it and, and something that could really make a difference in their lives. Yeah, I guess, you know, the legislation that you mentioned relates to the US, but there is no really safe place in the world, especially with the climate changing rapidly, faster than we can even finish this sentence. And so it's, it's really for everyone to get some awareness, get some consciousness around the subject and uh, protect themselves as much as they can. Yeah, there are some places you can live that are less vulnerable than others. Like I lived for, I think, 18 years in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, great area. I love Texas. San Antonio, because it's not right on the coast, isn't really a hurricane bullseye. There can be flooding issues there, but it's not, you don't worry so much about hurricanes wiping you out. You rarely worry about snow. You don't really worry about earthquakes. So different areas have their different issues. And it's understanding what those risks are. If you live in California, it's inevitable you're going to get hit by a big earthquake. If you live in Florida, you're probably going to see a hurricane at some point. You live in Oklahoma, a tornado is, is in your future. So you need to understand those risks and then say, well, what can I do to improve my chances if that happens? But there are areas that are a lot safer than others if you, if you dig down and look at it. Right. Well, let's hope for the brighter future. Yes. Thank you so much for this interview. I'm off to watch the movie right away and I encourage everybody else to do the same. And I will be sharing my uh, impressions on this very podcast later on. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. This was episode 83 with George Siegel, where we spoke about documentary filmmaking and dealing with natural disasters wherever you are in the world. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you will stay more uh, on this podcast to listen to other episodes. We earlier spoke to Jorg Alterkruz about uh, climate and documentary filmmaking. That was uh, early 2020. And uh, maybe you can find some other topics of your interest in the directory of our podcast. Thanks for being with us today. And until next time, next Thursday, if you like the podcast, make sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or Podchaser. Uh, I will be able to see those reviews that you leave on Podchaser, and I promise to get back to you and leave my reply. Thank you very much. Take care of yourself. Stay curious and stay sustainable. Goodbye.